Happy New Year. Well, it's the new year and we, uh, you know, the year has gone so uh, fast in some ways, yet slow in others. Someone was saying, I was reading an article, you know, they did a study and um, for many people, time has passed during this pandemic in a blur. So he he called it a collection of blurs days. (laughs) You know, you blur one day into another, you're not even sure where you are, not sure what time of the year you are. But here we are at the cusp of a new year. And you know, oftentimes for New Year's, we want to make new resolutions, right? Because it's a new year, you want to start afresh, you want to start uh, with uh, new thoughts. This year, we want to start on a new theme. And over the next uh, three weeks, I want to look at this book of Esther. Because it's not really a book that's often preached, but it's from this book that I draw the theme for our year for such a time as this. And if you bear with me over these next three weeks, you begin to understand what I mean by this as a theme. This is something I think the Lord has laid on my heart uh, for us to think through and to reflect upon. Now, if you know anything about the book of Esther, if you've ever studied it, you realize that it was written uh, uh, of the account when the people of Israel were in exile. Remember, because they had been unfaithful to the covenant, God had sent His people into exile for 70 years. First under the Babylonian Empire, then later on the Persian Empire superseded that. And what we are reading here in this book is really um, uh, the time in which the people of God were there. You know anything about Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, which are the two books that come before it, you know that you know, God was beginning to gather His people. This was coming towards the tail end of their exile. And a lot of Israelites began to return to Israel, to Jerusalem in particular where the temple was being rebuilt, where the walls were being rebuilt. But Esther deals with those who remained in exile. And I think if we stop and we think about it, there are actually uh, quite strong um, reasons why this book is relevant to us living today in 2022. Because what the people of God were facing was the fact that they were in a religious minority in a society that largely misunderstood them, that uh, they found themselves at odds with. And in this book itself, they found themselves threatened with extinction. Literally, for them, genocide. And, you know, how do you relate to a dominant culture that carries values and ideas and concepts that are so different from our Uh, what we are told to believe and what we are called to hold to. On the one hand, some people may withdraw. And they say, you know, let's have a holy huddle and let's stay apart from the culture. Others may think, oh, let's adapt to fit in. You know, keep our faith private and then, you know, let the, uh, the secular space just dominate how we live. Others may think, oh, we need to be outspoken and protest everything. But in in many ways, that's not even a way to uh, find (laughs) your your space. And this book in particular helps us to think through that. How do you follow God in a culturally and spiritually ambiguous uh, situation? What do you do when you don't really know what to do? And the guidance is not very clear. And in many ways, you feel like you're flying blind. Can God work through you and with you? in that circumstance? 
You know, many times whenever we've read this book of Esther, and especially when we grow up and it's taught to us in Sunday school, usually the moral of the story is, be like Esther. And that's how we often approach the Old Testament. But as you will see as I unpack it, especially today, she's not really a great example to follow on many levels. Really, you know, the key, I think, to understanding Scripture is what Jesus taught in um, Luke 24 when he was speaking to the disciples, uh, especially on the road to Emmaus, where he taught them, you know, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all Scriptures things concerning himself. That ultimately, as we've been worshipping as, as Moses led us, you know, we point to the Jesus in all of Scripture. Scripture points us to him. And um, I'm not going to do a verse-by-verse exposition of this book because it's 10 chapters long. It's not a very long book. You know, I sat down and I read through it once in within half an hour. And I'm not a very fast reader, mind you. You know, so you can go ahead and go ahead and do that. Read it in several versions because it's an interesting story and it's uh, in many ways very interesting. But there are three things I think we can draw out of today's um, um, lesson and three things I want to point out to you from especially chapters 1 and 2 of Esther. First is, is that God is always at work, despite appearances. Secondly, the world in which we live is obsessed with appearances. But thirdly, God's work frees us from the enslavement to the ways of the world, which I think all of us struggle with in one way, shape or form. Now let's go back right to the beginning of this book. And in the beginning, you see it starts with a banquet, a festival, a feast. And uh, King Xerxes in particular, um, uh, Ahasuerus, is actually Xerxes. Uh, Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name. Xerxes is the Greek name. Now, I don't know how many watched that movie, 300. Gerard Butler, The Battle of Thermopylae. Right? So that was the Greek uh, uh, King Leonidas. Xerxes was the Persian king right, who came against him. And he was a great uh, uh, conqueror. He never managed to conquer uh, Greece. Thermopylae was one of the reasons why it was so difficult for him. But nonetheless, he was a person in history. And in... Um, what happened to that? Ah... Anyway, it's, it would have been there. I don't know why are uh, there. Verses 7 and 8. You know, it, it tells the story of how, right, they had such a big party. You know, it says they were so drunk, right, because the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion uh, in that sense. For the king had also given orders to all the staff that in his palace so that each man can drink as much as they desire. There's no limits placed on them. Right, so you can think about it after a uh, um, um, seven-day period of uh, banquet. Right, these guys were drunk out of their minds. And in that context, Xerxes thought to himself, Oh, my queen is the most beautiful woman in all the land. Let me bring her out and show her before everyone. So he made an, a royal edict, summoned his queen to come. And you think, if you are Vashti, here you are supposed to appear in a banquet full of drunken men, right? And, and parade your beauty. How would you respond? Well, Vashti, I think, responded in a way and any sane woman would respond. I'm not going to go anywhere near this place. 
And she said, nope, I'm not coming. Which, of course, in the end, angered uh, uh, Circe's as the king. And so, uh, long story short, he dismissed her. Fortunately, he didn't cut off her head, but you know, still nonetheless banished her from the kingdom and said, I'm stripping you of your uh, role as queen. And so now he has to find a new queen. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter uh, 2, where he calls forth a, a, a Miss Persia beauty pageant. right? And it says that all the women from around the land were called, but this wasn't voluntary. right? You look here in verse 8. It says that Esther was also taken into the king's palace, i.e. it was <laughs> forced upon her. It wasn't something that she looked for. It wasn't something she applied to be part of. She was forced to, and that was the way things were done in those days, in that era. And, you know, she was told and taught, keep quiet. Don't let anybody know where you come from. Don't let anyone know that you are a Jew. You know, um, be silent about your background. And eventually, we know the story tells us, she rises to eventually become the queen. Do you realize if you were to sit down and read through the book of Esther, God is not mentioned anywhere in this book, 10 chapters. Not mentioned a single time. Not mentioned in euphemism as the Lord. Not mentioned as the uh, you know, Almighty or God. No, there's no mention of God whatsoever. This whole book in the Old Testament has no miracles whatsoever. There are no prophecies. In fact, there isn't even a mention of prayer. You know, and, and I think the author uh, was painstakingly trying to avoid any mention of prayer even. To, next week, we'll look at the passage where it seems like there may have been some prayer, but not really, because there's no word said that there was any prayer in this book. And I believe, and many scholars believe, this was intentional. How did this book end up in Scripture? Martin Luther, as is his way, wanted to kick it out of the canon, right? He didn't want it to be part of the Bible because, you know, God's not mentioned. How could this be a, a, a biblical book? John Calvin, who wrote commentaries on just about every book in the Bible, did not write a commentary on the book of Esther because I think he was puzzled about how do I deal with this? And as I was saying, the first point I was trying to make is this, that God is always at work despite appearances. Here they were in a position where I talked about how, you know, they were living in perilous times and they were threatened with extinction. As you read through it, you'll see what happens. And, you know, unlike other times in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, you know, every time the people of God were under duress, every time they were threatened, as they cried out to God, God responded in power whether it would be the ten plagues in Egypt or the parting of the Red Sea or pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day leading them through the wilderness, you know, uh, um, uh, the, the city of Jericho falling uh, um, right before them, answering by fire, a uh, challenge, you know, to burn up the sacrifice on the altar. In this book, nothing like that takes place. Yet, if you read the book right to the end, what is amazing about this book 
is the series of coincidences that took place to enable the deliverance of his people to take place. Starting with the fact that you know, Xerxes had lost his mind because he was drunk out of his mind, and he called Vashti, and Vashti refused to answer. That opened the door for Esther to become the queen. The fact that Esther was born beautiful. It says not only was she beautiful, even her figure was beautiful. All right, you can uh, imagine what it was like. How Mordecai stumbled upon a rebellion taking place in the palace and uncovered it. You read, read later on, you know, uh, in the reading we had there, it says it was recorded, but there was nothing given to Mordecai. It just so happened that Circes uh, couldn't sleep one night. And what did he do? He picked up history to read. Hopefully, history will put him to sleep. <laughs> and he started reading and he discovered, oh, wait, Mordecai did this. I need to honour him. You know, and on and on and on and on. As you read this book, you see it is all these coincidences which ultimately point to the fact that God was at work. I don't know how many of you would think, oh, drunken king, wow, God must be at work. <laughs> That's not our normal way of thinking, right? But what God says to us through this book is that He is at work. Even when we don't see Him, He's working. Even when we don't feel Him, He's working. That's what that chorus waymaker says, right? That He works even in the ordinary life. Now, I didn't point out to you that actually I, I'm very indebted to uh, Pastor Tim Keller. He preached this sermon or, or this series some time back and you know, it really inspired me in, in terms of how to unpack uh, Esther as I was studying and reading for this whole sermon series. But in it, uh, he said this. Do I have the quote here? Yeah. God's silence is not absence. His hiddenness is not abandonment. He's working out your salvation. He's keeping His promises, even though it looks like He's nowhere around. And that's the first point I want to make from this book of Esther. But the second point I want to make is this. That even though God doesn't care about appearances, very often we do. <laughs> Appearances mean everything to us. You know, how often do we get mad when we say, God, I don't see you at work. Why is there nothing happening? This book tells us whether we can perceive him at work or not, God is at work. That it is not based just on appearances. And mind you, it's no wonder we think that way because that's what the world is. The world is obsessed with appearances. Let's take the story back to chapter 1. And I told you they were having a celebration, right? Uh, uh, and it's not just a celebration of a seven-day feast. The seven-day feast came at the culmination of a 180-day festival. And why was there a 180-day festival? Right? In chapter 1, it tells us he needed 180 days to have a, a, a celebration because he needed to display all his wealth to the kingdom. It took him 180 days to bring all his possessions before everybody and show everyone how wealthy he was, how much he had made, how uh, capable he was in that sense. 
then in chapter 2, we see, of course, uh, the beauty pageant, right? It's uh, Persia's Got Talent, <laughs> a version of, you know, bringing forward all the talent. And in this, we see two things about Persian culture. For them, importance for men was measured by their wealth and their power. On the other hand, if you were a woman in the Persian Empire, your importance was measured by how sexually and physically beautiful you are. Aren't you glad you didn't live in those times? <laughs> but wait a minute, stop and think about it for a moment. Is it so different today? How often do we judge people by the size of their wallet or by the attractiveness of their figure? The world in which we live, you know, the externals matter far more than the content of the character of the person. Isn't that right? That's how people judge. We do judge books by their cover. We, you know, find that what you have is more important than who you are. That's why uh, the, the way people value others, oftentimes, you know, their, their worth is judged by their net worth. Unless you have the right credentials, unless you have the right uh, color of your skin, unless you are pursuing the right career or you have the right kind of car, you may not find people approving of you. In many ways, if you stop and you think about it, all of us end up being concubines to this world's system. To judging people based on appearances. And so, because we judge that way, all of us need beauty treatments. Right? What do I mean? I'm not talking about necessarily, you know, going for makeup <laughs> or facials every week. Although that is part and parcel of it. But we try to dress ourselves up by making sure we mix with the right friends or looking for the right kind of career that puts us on a trajectory or you know, pursuing the right kind of hobby that is uh, 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 respectable before people. This is what I mean when you stop and you think about Esther. Why Esther should not necessarily be held up as an example for all of us to follow because by all measures... Esther was a sellout to the culture. And every uh, um, sort of uh, interpreter of the book of Esther acknowledges this, whether they are liberal interpreters or conservative uh, interpreters. For example, uh, you know, liberal scholars who are especially feminists would say she blew it. They hold Vashti up as this strong woman who held fast to her convictions and was able to stand on her, her, her ground no matter the fact that it put her position under power, a uh, position of power under threat, rather. Whereas Esther is this pushover, right? If you, you look in uh, verses 8 and 9 of uh, uh, chapter 2, it says, as she was put under the... Uh, um, charge of Haggai, who was in charge of all the harem, she pleased him and won his favor. You know, you wonder what kind of feminine wiles she ex exerted upon him and found a way to make sure that she advanced in front of everybody else. She became compliant on so many levels. 
And, you know, uh, the liberal con uh, uh, commentators are not really impressed with her in that sense. She seemed like a sellout. But what's interesting is if you look at uh, more conservative commentators, they also point out that she failed. Because if you want to compare, compare to the book of Daniel, where a young Jewish man with his three friends, when they were confronted with the same thing in the palace, it says that they stood up and said, we are Hebrews and we worship Yahweh. And Yahweh has laws for us that we cannot eat the food in this palace. You know, let, you, let us prove it to you. Let us eat what we want to eat or need to eat. And we won't, be any, uh, we won't fall behind anyone else. Right? They stood up. They wouldn't bow to an idol. They were firm in their conviction. What about Esther? Esther went under the radar. She compromised. She ate whatever she wanted to eat or was put before contrary to God's law. She was a young unmarried woman who slept with a king. She ultimately married an unbeliever. Again, against the law of God. In other words, she was totally compromised. She capitulated 100%. But you stop and you say, hey, pastor, wait lah. What could she do? She's a young lady put in this circumstance. She was taken against her will. What could she do? I wonder how many of us ask that same question. What can I do? I'm in this position, what? You know, if I want to survive, I want to put food on my table, I have to move along with the way things operate in society. I have to compromise. But you stop and you think about it. Despite the fact that she had compromised, was God done with her? No. The Lord continued to lead her and used her. And I believe by grace, she stepped forward bravely. We'll see that next week when we look at uh, chapter 4. And she was able to be used by God to save the entire race. Not just in Persia itself. It says the edict was to go out to all the empire and they were the uh, superpower of the day. Right? They, they ruled the entire known world at that point of time. You know, if you look at the Bible, time and time again, God's grace works through flawed, sinful individuals. Over and over again, it's not just Esther alone, but all throughout Scripture. Which brings me then to the final uh, point I wanted to make, and that's, you know, God's work frees us from our enslavement to the ways of the world. Let's be frank, most of us can't get past appearances. You know, I try to, but I know I'm quite skin deep. We judge ourselves and each other by all kinds of things. There's a, a pastor's prayer summit coming up, and every year, you know, you, you kind of judge the person if you don't know where, oh, Hi, what church do you pastor? You know, 
and they'll tell you, and then, oh, never heard of your church. How big is your church? You know, <laughs> that's inevitably the question that comes up next. And then you say, 2,000. Oh, can I get to know you? Can we sit down for a meal? You know, 20 people. Uh, hi, nice meeting you. God bless you, you know. <laughs> Even pastors are, are, are sometimes, not sometimes, oftentimes uh, subject to appearances. But if it's not that, we judge them based on their beauty or their money or their talent or the amount of power they have or the connections that they can bring or, you know, the resume that they have. See, this is like the world. As with King Circe saying, I will be your spouse. I will marry you. But if you want to be married to me, make sure you're beautiful enough. Make sure you work hard enough. Make sure you sacrifice yourself enough. Make sure you exhaust yourself so that you are deemed worthy of being my spouse. But God says otherwise. God says to us, I will be your spouse. And if you look throughout history, uh, uh, salvation history in the Old Testament, that was the metaphor God often used for His people. I don't know how you think about it, but you know, if you uh, read the Old Testament, sometimes it's not that comforting an idea, right? If, it's, if I need to reach this level of beauty to be the spouse of King Xerxes, what about the king of the universe? Even worse, right? I, what kind of beauty treatments do I have to go through to be... God's uh, uh, spouse. Can I be good enough? Can I read the Bible enough? Can I pray enough? Can I be ethically and morally pure enough? You stop and you read this book and you realize Esther may have been very beautiful on the outside. But inside, the character was not quite so beautiful, was it? And yet, like I said, you know, God was able to use her and to turn something that was not so beautiful into something that ultimately was used for His purposes. And that's what not only the Old Testament tells us, the New Testament also says it like this. Paul, in speaking to the Ephesian church, talking to them about marriage, he turns and he uses this metaphor again for the people. He says to husbands, Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word so that he may present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Esther was loved because she was beautiful. Jesus loves us despite the fact we aren't and we are full of flaws, but He makes us beautiful. Esther gave up her life and her freedom for the King. Jesus was the King who gave up His life and His freedom for you. He was pierced for our transgressions. You know, when you really understand this, this frees you up from being enslaved to the world and the world's appearances. Why? Firstly, because 
Number one, it gives you a real definition of beauty. Right? The world's definition of beauty is such that when we look at these externals, it makes us self-obsessed. It makes it such that, you know, metaphorically or literally, walking past any mirrored surface makes you stop and gaze and get distracted. If that's what you're obsessed with, you know, that's what will happen is this self-obsession. But when we see what Christ did for us, you know, Isaiah in his prophecy talked about Jesus having no beauty that we should desire him. He gave up his beauty for us on the cross. And we see that, you know, scripturally, biblically, and ultimately how God designed it is that real beauty is not self-obsession, rather it is self-sacrifice. A willingness to lay down your life. But secondly, understanding what God has done for us gives us a new experience of our beauty and how He sees us. You know, the metaphor that's used is of a, a bridegroom and a bride. Just at a wedding yesterday, and I've conducted many weddings this year, <laughs> It's always, you know, uh, amazing to watch the groom turns and looks down the aisle and sees his bride coming towards him. And like, he looks so besotted. <laughs> right? It's like, wow, some, some grooms even cry. <laughs> you know, I've seen that happen. And of course, what? She's all made up. Her hair's really beautiful. She's wearing a wonderful dress. You know, she's well packaged. No wonder. But when you stop and you think about it, when God calls himself our bridegroom, he is equally besotted with us. Not because we have all these externals, but because of what he has done for us and how he has made us and how he is forming us into a bride worthy of him. When you begin to understand that and when that begins, begin to grip your soul, does it really matter how the world sees us? Do our appearances really matter after all? Can you see how that begins to free us from the things that can so easily enslave us? I hope as we continue to reflect on Esther in these next few weeks, may the Lord so capture you with His love that you see His grace that's at work, that was at work thousands of years ago in Esther's life, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that He continues to be at work today in our midst and in His presence. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have called us and you have brought us into your presence and called us your own. That you have bought us with a price. And Lord, you didn't call us because we were worthy in and of ourselves, but because you alone are worthy. And that you have been shaping us as your people to become a bride ready for the bridegroom. 
Father, as we turn into this new year of 2023, we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see you at work. And even when we don't perceive your working, because it's working through the circumstances we find ourselves in, both positively and negatively, help us, Lord, to put our trust fully in you. To walk by faith and not by sight. To allow us, Lord, to believe your word, which is always yes and amen, that your promises never fail and never fall short. Father, may this be a year in which we recognize our position in you and see how you have called us for such a time as this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.